Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson Podcast. Today, a fascinating insider interview with a journalist who's worked at CNN, Fox News, and beyond has seen the radical changes in news media firsthand and has a lot to say about all of it that you'll want to hear. If you're listening to this podcast, you are probably an independent free thinker. You're probably interested in the devolution of the news media, and that pretty much guarantees you're going to love today's interview with journalist and media critic Steve Krakauer. His new book is Uncovered, and we'll let him take it from here. Um, so I really started my career. I was uh, I was at NBC Page uh, for a little bit, like uh, for anyone who's ever watched uh, 30 Rock, I was... Uh, was one of those ones with the peacock tie and doing the tours and uh, the very bottom of the rung of the ladder there in New York City uh, at 30 Rock there. Um, but really, you know, I got my start in the media working at TV Newser and then Mediate covering the media industry, reporting about the media um, and uh, and specifically about kind of TV news. I then worked over at CNN. Actually, before that, also, I worked at Fox and I uh, worked at CNN for several years, uh, originally uh, working on Piers Morgan's show there and then overseeing basically how television lives online. So how does it live on the website? How does it live on social media? That was 2010 to 2013. I worked at The Blaze, uh, moved over there, moved down to Dallas uh, through that. And I've been here ever since for nine years now. Um, I worked at The Blaze for a few years as uh, and uh, and then I, I had my own company for a little bit. And more recently, um, I'm uh, Megan Kelly, uh, executive producer for the Megan Kelly show podcast video and uh, Sirius XM show, as well as starting the uh, Fourth Watch podcast and newsletter, um, which started about two and a half years ago, uh, which is now on Substack. Well, let me, before we get into your book, which sounds fascinating, people will love it if they're listening to this podcast. Couple questions. Um, if your reflections are like mine, and if they're not, perfectly fine. But I worked in the media for many years. I worked at CNN, PBS, CBS, and I was often called liberal media, you know, liberal media bias, I guess, if truth be known, the way I think, maybe there is more tendency for liberalism and some of that, but I always tried to keep that out of my stories. And then I guess after I moved to DC, I I would be maybe more libertarian. I just don't associate with political identity, but I do think our money's wasted all the time. I see it firsthand. I do stories on it. So I feel like Washington doesn't spend our money very well. But when you're not just left left these days and you don't express left opinions in your stories, you are then branded as falsely being right. And I think that's part of a propaganda campaign so that people who, you know, speak truth to power, if it's the wrong power, it marginalizes them or makes it where some people won't listen to them. Can you give me some of your thoughts on your experience working at places, some of the same places I worked, and then you ended up in what would be considered, I guess, right leading media? Yeah, I, I would say I share that that same sort of opinion as you in, in terms of working at places like the, these outlets before and and really how it's transitioned, because I think that's that's important. I mean, I was at CNN 2010 to 2013. This is not that long ago. I mean, we're talking about less than 10 years ago that I was in those new newsrooms. And I think that there were valid criticisms at the time of places like CNN and, and more broadly of you know a left leaning bias. I would say I think the average person in that newsroom voted for Democrats when they voted at all. Um, but 
there was also a sense of really trying to keep that bias in check. You know, this was not a typical occupation to be a journalist. It was it was to have opinions and to try to suppress them because that was your part of your job. Objectivity was about presenting the truth no matter where it led and, and keeping your own opinions out. That was the standard. That was the principles. And then it shifted because, yeah, I think you correctly diagnosed that in the last seven to eight years, I would say, and I, I sort of track this in 2014 with what happened in Ferguson, which we, we can get into, but I think it certainly accelerated during the Trump years, but it was not solely based on Trump. And then really what's come after with this real censorship craze and the uh, anti-speech activism that's come in it, we have seen a shift in in so many different areas and and for so many different reasons and it's why really what led me to to write uncovered in the first place which was that the incentives have changed so now even people that once maybe had the thought that okay i'm going to stick with my principles now they have the fear of getting yelled at on social media of not being promoted by their bosses and then you couple that with a real, I mean, I, I quote a New York Times reporter who, who a former New York Times reporter who's, who's very candid with me in the book. Um, everyone who's who I interview in the book, more than two dozen people are on the record. Um, and so this is a person who I actually give some credit for saying this and putting their name to it. Um, but she says that there is a young generation in these newsrooms that believe objectivity is akin to white supremacy. And that is a stunning admission, but something that I think is really true. And if what we're seeing is that we're, we're losing the principles of objectivity to a new generation that if they are allowed to sort of take over these newsrooms, journalism is going to look extremely differently and even worse than it is now in the years to come. I don't know. I'd say too late. I think you've described very well what we're seeing right now, and you can talk to older people in journalism, not that this is purely an older, younger divide, but some, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist that I know, but it has in a well-reputed journalism group with young people, this was some years ago, the time frame you're talking about when it changed, where they thought it was perfectly fine to insert your opinions, they argued in this internal email, I guess, exchange, perfectly fine for reporters to put all their opinions in their stories as long as they're supported which is the right. weirdest notion of journalism to me. And, you know, I'll just say before we move on, I think it's the weirdest idea that reporters even think people should care what they personally think, unless there are instances, and these do occur, where a reporter has done a deep dive into a particular topic and does become a subject matter expert. But short of that, we're typically reporting on things we don't know more about than the people we're interviewing or probably know less about. Who cares what we think unless we have some kind of expertise? And it's a great intellectual exercise to actually keep your personal opinions out of a story unless it matters because you've done, you know, these deep dive investigations. It's a great intellectual exercise to represent various viewpoints that you may not agree with and to do it fairly. So I think I think that's been lost. But I, I agree with you. And, and, and let me just say as an example, I, I think so. I think one of the, the things that's really been in some ways, a good thing for the audience to, to really pull back the curtain in a very real way is Twitter. Um, and I think Twitter has been just disastrous for the press. Uh, but part of that is that we can now see that the media, unlike, again, pretty much any other occupation, treats it like it's their diary. And and the people there, I mean, they can build a huge so following true. and become influencers. But but it's not now their thoughts, They what they actually believe are out there in the public. And it actually shows that even there are good 
journalists at a lot of these institutions, New York Times, Washington Post. But so often they're undermined by their own colleagues and even their own thoughts that they're just spilling out publicly on Twitter. And one example I write about in Uncovered is there's a reporter named Astrid Herndon at the New York Times. And right after Governor Glenn Youngkin won election uh, to, in the, to become governor of Virginia, he tweeted that night, election night, his essentially instant analysis of what happened. And in his mind, it was white grievance politics that won out that day. And, and you know, not, of course, if you look at the exit polls, the you know, education and the COVID lockdowns and all of these other things, Plus, look, there's millions of people who voted for Governor Youngkin. And so there's lots of reasons probably that people voted for him. But that was his instant analysis. He, do, he put all that out on Twitter. Three days later, he files a report for The New York Times, a news report that was from the border of Virginia and West Virginia, featuring eight interviews with white people, farmers, rural uh, uh, Virginians who essentially confirmed his story that it was white grievance politics. That was why they voted for him. And that was portrayed as the reason he won. And okay, that's not necessarily showing that it's made up, but what it's showing, we see the sausage making. We saw that night, that was the story he wanted to write. And then he went and did it because that was his opinion of what happened. And then it becomes the news for the New York Times readers. Well, more nuance. So I saw it change at CBS, whereby I was, for most of my career, encouraged to go find great stories and investigations and tell them what happened. And you do lead the leave the office with a theory in mind or an idea of what the story is but the beauty of real journalism is as you actually go about in, investigating or interviewing people you often find it's not what you thought and right. too often today journalists and their bosses write these little films or movies these plots in their head at the beginning of the day and i saw this at cbs before i quit and then fulfill the reporter, have the reporter go out and fulfill their little novel by finding casting characters that will say what they want. The truth be damned. So when when I would come back and say, you know, toward the end of my time at CBS, that's not what happened, or this is a better story. Here's what people actually said. Here's what's actually going on. They didn't want to air those stories. So that that was the big shift that I saw, as you described, people going out and fulfilling their own notion. They may be ill-informed, but their own notion of what a story is. So tell right, me, how, right. I, I, yeah. when you wrote Uncovered, what was sort of the idea that you had in your mind that you thought needed writing about? What did you set out to accomplish? I guess we've probably covered some of that, but how would you describe it? Yeah, I really, you know, the genesis of the book, frankly, was after Donald Trump won election in November of 2016, I, <clears throat> I, I was... A little bit surprised, but I, I live in Dallas. I have lots of friends who are, you know, the people have messy points of view. They're not reflected in the punditry we see on cable news. And so I knew, you know, gay couples who voted for Trump, but I know, who, you know, it was, it was, it was all over the map, but the media was shocked. I mean, there, there's reporting on this, both in my book and elsewhere, of people crying in the newsroom because they were just so, they couldn't deal with it. And it was beyond just Donald Trump. It was it was the fact that they clearly missed something. They missed a very key thing, what was happening in the country. And in April of 2017, I put together this little proposal. I called in all my favors to uh, you know, executives at CNN and CBS and ABC and NBC. And I pitched them on this, this short, like kind of three page proposal of, look, clearly you've got some blind spots here. You missed the mood of the country. How do you reconnect with with an audience that that you know has different perspectives that, that are not being reflected in your coverage now and correct for the future? And there was a little bit of interest, but ultimately everyone passed. 
And that then turned into Fourth Watch, which I started in, in December of 2019. And that really was the start of this book, which is to try to explain to the average person, this is not just what happened over these last seven years, some, some key examples, some case studies, and, and but to really try to understand how it happened and why it happened. Because it's, I would love if the corporate press suddenly got their, got their stuff together and started to correct some of these, these clear issues that they have and blind spots that they have. But they're like tankers, and it's going to take forever to turn the right direction, even if their head's in the right place. So instead of that, start to understand, start to see what the red flags are that you can identify and know for the future. So we don't need the gatekeepers to get better. There's enough independent press out there. Read this and understand this is what happened. This is what to look for in the future. And here's how to avoid it. Well, that's a beautiful thing. Are there some red flags that you can discuss today in fairly simple terms for people to watch out for when they're trying to sort through the truth? Because I think most people sample, they don't sit and watch typically, they don't sit and watch a whole newscast every night like our parents did or read a publication cover to cover. They're kind of hunting and pecking. What would you say they should be on the lookout for? Yeah, you know, there, there's so many examples, I think, as we look at, at the COVID pandemic, which I think was a real low point in, in the media. Uh, and and I, I understand on some level, March, April, May 2020, we're going to get some incorrect coverage. I think that that's, that's a given and I don't, I don't fault the media for doing that, but no interest to get it right ultimately in the end. And instead of being interested and curious and, and understanding the humility that it would take to say, look, this is a giant pandemic. We don't know what's going on. Let's, let's hear from lots of different people. They went the other direction and they sort of clamped down on speech. And I think that tells us a couple of things. First of all, I identify one concept as a doom bias. And, you know, you hear if it bleeds, it leads. But you have to understand that, that especially with COVID, but a lot of these stories, <clears throat> there is aut automatically a bias in the corporate press towards what I call doom. You know, essentially, if there's different directions, there's a fork in the road, it could go one way, it could go the other way. If you're not getting the nuance of here's the couple different scenarios and you're only getting one direction, it's going to be in that direction towards doom. There's a bias inherent in that in essentially scaring you. And so, so to be aware of that. But I also think I, I, I lay this out related to the lab leak theory, but it relates to so many issues with COVID and, and beyond. And uh, there's uh, Nate Silver of, of ABC actually has a great quote about this that I put in the book where if there's a debate going on and there's two sides and there's evidence on both sides, like with the lab leak theory, for example, and there's experts on both sides, but only one side is interested in policing the discourse in essentially saying we don't need, we don't, we shouldn't hear from the other side. Only one side is saying that, that's the side that is likely to be wrong. And at the very least, you should be very skeptical of. Very and I think that, that that's important to understand also is with all of these stories, if there's one side is saying the other side is dangerous, the other side we shouldn't listen to, that you should be skeptical about. I think that's a great point. And going outside COVID, and I can say as a, I've tried really hard over the years to improve my journalism as I go. There have been valid critiques of what I've done and realization over the years of unintentional bias. But one thing I noticed, again, a non-COVID example of the doom, um, you know, we always look for the most interesting facet of a story. So you go to a hurricane and you look for the most flooded street to do your story on, or right. you go to a war zone and you find the worst part. And I've come to learn and try to give better perspective that I was in 
Greece. I was in Athens one time for vacation with my daughter and there were riots going on, but we never saw them. Actually, we drove past one. It was literally one small block of Athens and they, they actually took lunch off, took a break. <laughs> but my husband was watching at home and he's like, oh my God, are you safe? Athens is a mess. And I had to explain to him, it's just one block of Athens. Like we don't even see that. <laughs> and I've started to try to give that perspective sometimes. Like we were covering the Iraq war long after most of it was over, but there was still a very troubled zone and area in Iraq. And, but much of Iraq looked really good. And we just didn't do, I started arguing at CBS, we should show on a map that this is a very tiny geographic region that's still dicey. Not that it's not to be covered. We should absolutely cover those stories, but give some perspective as to what's really going on in the big picture. And I think too often, that's sort of an unintentional bias. We're just always looking for the interesting factor and we're not always giving a good context or perspective for it. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. You know, I, I do think that there's there's limitations to the old model of journalism, frankly. And, you know, at, like the 60 minutes, you can at least tell a little bit more of a, of a nuanced story. But a cable news hit, you're talking about three, four minutes, you know, if if that blog posts now, I mean, Twitter, you know, we, we get more and more granular as we go. And that really hurts the audience because at the same time, we're dealing with, I think, and again, whether it's COVID, whether it's the Hunter Biden laptop story, which is the first chapter in my book, which I think is, is it tells so much about what happened to the press and, and, and its complete decline. There is an interest in not telling the full story to the audience. And I think it stems from a distrust of the audience that you can't really, you can't handle the nuance or in some cases, the media themselves, you know, the, the journalists covering it are maybe a little bit um, in over their head. Uh, maybe they're, they're a little bit lazy about it. Maybe they're, they're a little bit incompetent and they're not able to tell that story. So they, they automatically go to the easiest way possible to tell it to the one that they think is just is 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 a singular way of doing it. They sort of consensus opinion rather than presenting the the full picture because it's just easier. And I think you know we see poll after poll. Obviously, anyone who's listening to this podcast knows the trust in the media is at all time lows. I saw one poll uh, that it's not just the the right, but independents. I mean, there's eight percent of Republicans trust TV news and eight percent of independents trust TV news. I mean, this is disastrous numbers for the corporate press. And why is that? I think part of that stems from this idea that the press doesn't trust them and they can feel that. And, and I think that's the reaction to it. What do you call, you've coined some phrases to explain these things you've observed. What is it that you refer to as glance journalism? Yeah, I, I, I we see this so often now, uh, especially as a 24 hour news cycle becomes a you know, one hour, 24 minute news cycle, uh, as Twitter has really ramped up, the way a story originally gets covered is often the thing that gets stuck in people's minds because the, the media never goes back to really, they don't have an incentive to go back and correct things if they got it wrong. We see this a lot with like shootings. So what's the motive in this shooting that the, the media is covering, you know, tremendously wall to wall for a few hours, you know, maybe a day. Okay, now we're moving on. And then whatever was seated out there, this sort of the glance coverage of it, just a glance, that's the story that that gets stuck in people's minds, even if years later it gets it gets corrected. Um, there's a few examples like that in the book, but just I start with with Ferguson and what happened there because how many people to this day believe that Michael Brown said, hands up, don't shoot? I, I would imagine so many, many people. people. So many people. 
And yet, yes, and he, uh, one year later, the Obama Justice Department confirmed that not only was there no racial animus or racial, uh, you know, but behind Darren Wilson's shooting of Michael Brown, that Michael Brown charged at him and that was a justified shooting. That's why he was never charged. But the words, hands up, don't shoot, were never uttered, never said at all. And what's interesting and why I think that that was a really big pivot point for the media is that their glance journalism was not just that they then left it and moved on to the next story, but there were stories that were written that said, hands up, don't shoot. It wasn't really, it didn't really matter whether it was said or not. What mattered was that it was, it was the, the, the movement that it started. It, it was the, it began this movement. It was the narrative over the facts. And that's really dangerous. The fact that it was, it could be more important about what the, the, the general mood of it, not the actual facts of it, and then move on to it. That that's something that that I be, I believe started the path down the, the the real descent that we saw. And I think, um, gosh, which election was it with? After that, where I sometime later, all of the presidential candidates on the Democrat side tweeted out on an anniversary something libelous or slanderous about he'd been murdered by a police officer, which never right. happened. And in fact. Yeah, if I were the that police officer, did you say his name was Darren Wilson? Darren Wilson, yeah. I would he's just kept his head low since then. I guess he doesn't want to sue. That's a nightmare for him, probably and very expensive. But he has a cause of action because as you said, the, even the Obama Justice Department, which would have been anxious to charge if they could have found any thread to charge him with a civil rights violation or anything, even they said that never happened. He acted in self-defense. And yet um that that legend goes on, the folklore that's not true continues right. to be forwarded by top officials who are never fact-checked by the media when they say these things, except by people like you and me, I guess, once in a while. Exactly. <laughs> and it's and it's so, so many stories like it. I, I write about the Pulse nightclub shooting, um, which occurred uh, during the Trump years. And so many of that, it was a it was a, at a gay nightclub. Um, um, uh, Omar Mateen was the shooter. And it was covered essentially like an anti-LGBT shooting, a homophobic shooting. And it seemed, I think on the surface, certainly at a glance, that that was the case. But then years later, as we really dug into it, it was clear that Omar Mateen was an Islamic terrorist. And in fact, there's reporting that came out long after the, the media closed up shop in Orlando when they were covering this, that he entered that nightclub and asked where all the men were. I'm sorry, where all the women were. So he he was confused. He was not he was not scoping out trying to do an anti-gay uh, shooting uh, or or homicide. And, and so, but but how do people think of that now? What is it? What is what's stuck with people in the audience? And this happens in so many stories. And there's it's on some level there's no incentive for the media to get it right or to correct it in the future um, because you know the the correction is never as important. But at the same time, when when the audience is is not served by by this sort of glance journalism that we see i i call cases like that when narratives collide and yeah. i think the narrative one narrative that collided was it was an islamic extremist terrorist attacking a gay nightclub and you may be correct there was no intent but i i kind of thought at the time you know many extremist muslims are against gays if you go to these other, not even extremists if you go to these other countries as i have Sure. You know, in Morocco, they claim there are no gay people still. These are mainstream Moroccans who say it's illegal to be gay and they don't have any gay people. You'd be shocked or people who haven't traveled too much would be shocked at, you know, the sentiment in other countries. So how do you handle that? They want to defend. Um, they don't want it to be Muslim terrorism, right. but they want to defend a t an attack, obviously, upon a 
gay population, but then well, what? I think, yeah. Yeah, you're so. right. And that's and I think we saw in the way that was covered, because that's even at least a nuanced look at it. The way it was covered was it was Donald Trump stirring up anti-gay sentiment that led to it. You know, that was that was essentially the coverage from the corporate press. And again, without very much evidence. And in fact, as we learn now, no evidence uh, that was the that was the storyline that we saw, the narrative that that came out of it. Much more after a short break. Eyeshadow has come a long way since you swiped on one color at a time or practically had to take a masterclass in cosmetics to get the shading right. Hi, I'm Star, owner of The Lemonade Mermaid, and I've designed an exclusive shade-shifting multichrome pigment for eyes that's like no other you'll ever see. Just swipe it on your eyelids and the magic happens. Depending on the angle and light, it shifts between hues of golden pink or green and pink and even purple and gold. The shading is done for you. Just $25 for a jar that will last you months. My website is store.lemonademermaid.life. And listeners of this podcast can get 20% off these incredible pigments by using the checkout code PODCAST. I hope to see you at store.lemonademermaid.life today. So you currently executive produce for Megan Kelly's podcast, is that right? Yes. Yeah. That's the, that's the day job. Yep. So she has a huge following, but I know people will be interested if they happen to be listening and haven't seen her, how maybe some people listen to this podcast, probably much smaller number, but maybe some people listen to this that haven't found where she is now. Can you tell us where to find your program? Yeah, absolutely. So the Megan Kelly show is, is live every day um, from noon to 2 p.m. Eastern time on Sirius XM channel 111. So you can listen to it live. We also put out the free podcast after um, on all podcasting platforms and a full video show as well on YouTube. So youtube.com slash Megyn Kelly. And uh, yeah, you know, frankly, I, I think this book and kind of my philosophy on, on where the media is, I would say aligns a lot uh, with, with you, Cheryl, but also with Megan, who has been in these these newsrooms, you know, she's been at Fox, she's been at NBC, she's seen the inside and now is on the outside and in independent media, but can still bring that insider perspective. And I think can understand the faults of the corporate press, can understand some of the, po- the positives, because I think that they're, you know, you put a lot of resources, you can do some good journalism too. But by being outside, you can really focus on truth more than anything else. And that's what we try to do. So tell us, um, we don't have to spend a whole lot of time on this, but what is your view to the extent, I don't know if you wrote about it in your book, what happened to Megan or what her experience is. She was such a star at Fox. She didn't always have the opinions some people wanted her to have. I think she was she was very nuanced, she's a very bright person. Um, my take just as a casual observer went to NBC. They kind of, to me, minimized her, um, her impact and influence as a great journalist on issues. You know, she was doing a talk show, yeah. but it wasn't quite the same thing. And then she's gone from NBC and now she's doing more of, I think, what she made her bread and butter, her reputation doing with the, with her uh, daily show. But what's the take or the lesson of Megyn Kelly, would you say, as far as you know? Well, I have to say, you know, I, I don't know exactly what happened internally, but I can tell you that if if there's one example of the the general you know, corporate media, the Acela media, as I call it, that's based largely in New York and D.C., getting it wrong. What happened with the end of her time at NBC, I think, would would count in that. I don't have any inside information other than saying it became very clear to me that Megan was 
poking the bear in ways that they didn't want. Um, you know, she was very strong in covering some of the Me Too stories, even the ones that intersected with internally at NBC. And I think that made a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, I, 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 that's my that's my take on it. Um, but I can also say that I think what we've seen since then, right? So she was sort of early in, I think what ended up becoming the ridiculous ways that pressure campaigns through social media can completely torpedo good journalism. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in the book uh, and uncovered writing about what happened to James Bennett at the New York Times uh, after the Tom Cotton op-ed publishes, which again, people may be familiar with the story, but essentially what happened, um, and I, I talked to people who were inside at the time and go on the record and say people were crying that I work with, the, I, that this horrible, people, my friends won't talk to me because I work at the horrible New York Times that give published us, a column. this one paragraph. Tom Cotton wrote an op-ed, the New York Times, tell me if this is right, New York Times published that talked about something that had lots of credible threads to it, the COVID lab leak theory. Yeah. And Go ahead. Oh, well, no, 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 actually. So, so yes, I mean, that, that was another thing that Tom Cotton got in okay. trouble for. Tell me this well, one, what you're talking about. Yes. This, so this is, he writes a column about, uh, basically it was called send in the troops. It was during the, the social justice protests that led to the riots after George Floyd. And his point was, you know, the, the federal, uh, the, you know, the military should get involved in clamping down on these, these riots and okay. that are going on across the country. It was a, it was a column that was fairly nuanced, I should say. And it also was probably not a very surprising opinion coming from Senator Tom Cotton, but it caused an enormous uproar internally, and then that spilled out externally. And the because staffers, people inside the New York Times, didn't like conservative Tom Cotton having his views expressed in the New York Times. Exactly, and in fact, they actually wrote this was a this was something that a lot of the staff, including people that were very low on the totem pole, put out publicly and said, "Publishing this column puts the lives of Black New York Times staffers in danger." And it was that implication that is dangerous to publish this column that ultimately led this this action the, the, to, by pushing out the, the editor, uh, James Bennett, who, you know, pushing him out of the paper, causing all other sorts of cascading effect of what happened there. And it shows you that, A, these pressure campaigns work, but B, that the people that are, are in these newsrooms, and I'm talking about journalists that are, it's not, these are not activists. I, I can understand activists being mad about it, but journalists being able to say, listen, we, we, we think publishing thoughts and opinions and writing is dangerous. They just don't fundamentally understand journalism. So I, I think it really was a, was a key moment. I spent, spent a lot of time on it and uncovered, but it, it was a, it's, we've seen this play out in case after case uh, and, and people digging up old tweets from, from people and, and trying to get them fired, people trying to uh, you know, say one thing publicly. And then as we learn after I write about Sharon Osbourne, what happened with her, as we learn after they were actually saying to her, I don't even really believe this, but they had to say it publicly because they, they are the fear of being attacked on Twitter. I mean, it's a really, it's a really crazy time right now. And I do think that that a lot of this is, is, you know, is playing out in a lot of different areas, whether through Megan and others. Well, I have a dream and my dream is when people first started trying to use social media with these mobs to try to influence people's jobs or issues. If the news organizations had simply said, we don't really care what Twitter's saying, then those who manipulate social media, because as we know, they're heavily controlled now by the special interests that want to manipulate news and information, they wouldn't have a go-to that was effective if news organizations had simply stayed independent. But they treat this crazy social media as if it matters. So then it yes. does matter. 
And it's in this, they're in this death loop that they've created for themselves. They have to respond to it, even though it could be artificially generated and not reflecting at all what many people think, but it's, it becomes this self-fulfilling thing. hundred percent. I mean, I, I, it's, it's completely right. And, and I think, you know, as I, I lay out in one of the chapters about the broken financial incentive structure in the corporate press right now, I think this is a huge problem because if the business was still as strong as it used to be, I write about ESPN as an example, which, you know, ESPN has good years and bad years, but they're, they're just printing money. But then suddenly they start to, they start to feel it. They start to feel the quicksand going. And then they're no longer as strong in their principles or in, you know, standing strong, doing things that are purely about what's best for the business, what's best for the widest group of our audience. Audience. No, now suddenly you're potentially going to be swayed by the mob. And as you mentioned, not a large representative so section of the country. We're, we're talking about 2% of the country of adults in America represent 90% of the tweets that are about politics and news. Wow. That, I mean, that is, is it's totally unrepresentative of, of what the population actually thinks. And yet it has such outsized influence. Uh, I talked to Sharon Waxman, who's the founder of The Wrap. And she says that she has seen her own reporters move away from a story or cover a story differently or not cover it at all because of the fear they have of what the backlash might be on Twitter. I mean, that's a huge admission and that's a big problem. Uh, and these bosses need to, to get it under control and say, we're not going to be swayed by the mob or otherwise it's only going to get worse. Agreed. In our final moment, I frequently get asked a question that I really would like to have a better answer for. Maybe you have some good advice. People want to know where to get news and information. You know, if it's so conflicted and controlled as we sometimes describe, what is your thought about how people can sort through what's out there just to find good facts and to get news in a way that they're probably getting the truth rather than just spin? Yeah, it's very hard. I, I think, you know, the, the, the easy answer, which is, which is hard because it's not easy to do, is that I've like curated for myself a Twitter feed that, and, and, a, and an email list. I get a tons of emails of, to try to give a variety of sources, places I trust, but still want to make sure I get a variety of sources about. But that takes a long time to do. And most people don't have that kind of time. Most people have lives and families and they like to go outside. I, I get it. I mean, I'm, I'm a rare case in that way. So it's very hard. I, I think you need to find a couple of sources that you really trust that will give it to you straight and especially find sources that you think will sometimes tell you things you don't want to hear, because I think that's important. That gives them credibility uh, because you know you're not only being told one thing. Uh, there are sites like Real Clear Politics, I think, does a pretty good job of giving a nice representative snapshot in a moment of a variety of, of what's out there. Um, but unfortunately, there's not one go to. Uh, that I can point to and say, this is great. I mean, look, I think the Megyn Kelly show, I think, well, you, you know, you do a great work and I try to be, be honest, but look, it's hard for people these days to find that you can't just go turn on the news and get the news. Uh, and so it's, 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 it takes a little bit of extra work to really feel like you're, you're as so well, well informed these days. Well put. So let's remind people the name of your book and where they might be able to get it. I guess a lot of people- Absolutely. Want to buy on Amazon, but a lot of people don't want to buy on Amazon. So give us the way they, they can order. Sure. Yeah. So um, the book is Uncovered, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and Lost the People. It is available everywhere. You can find it at readuncovered.com, Amazon, wherever you get your books. And I will also say, in addition to the hardcover, you've got the audio book, which I talked to, you know, all the people that I talked to on the record, I've also recorded. You can hear it in their own voices, Tucker Carlson, Will Kane, uh, people from the New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, 
uh, all of the quotes in the book, you can actually hear the people say it as well, not just me. That's wonderful. So thank you so much for giving us the lowdown on all of that. Very interesting reflections. You sound a little bit like I sound when I talk about these issues, but yeah. that's just because we, I think we see a lot of the same things as people who've been inside the mainstream and now working independently. That's probably not a coincidence that we see a lot of the same things. Well, thank you. I have to say your books uh, on these, on some of these topics for sure is something that I, I've, I've always looked up to and, and just found is like really eye-opening uh, on this kind of, this kind of experience. Well, I appreciate it. And congratulations on Uncovered. The book is Uncovered, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and Lost the People. In this age of a highly controlled media landscape, it's never been more important to fight the heavy hand of censorship and support truly independent journalism. Go to CherylAckison.com and click the store tab for a great way to do that. There are all kinds of cool products. A lot of them make great gifts that feature catchphrases like, I tested positive for critical thinking, and do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. Proceeds support independent journalism causes like the Cheryl Ackeson Ion Awards for off-narrative, accurate reporting. Go to CherylAckison.com and click the store tab. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, you'll leave a great review and share it with your friends. And check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, for more original reporting and interviews on off-narrative topics that powerful interests often try to censor. It's never been more important to support independent reporting. You can do that by going to the CherylAckison.com website, click the Store tab, and browse our great products The most popular new slogan that I have on products there is, I need to find some new conspiracy theories. All the old ones came true. Proceeds support causes like the Cheryl Ackeson Ion Awards, giving cash awards, recognizing and encouraging independent off-narrative reporting by college students and professionals. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.